and welcome to the April 2014 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Just a reminder, if you're listening to us on iTunes and enjoying our program, please do take a minute to rate us highly so that we will continue to gain more listeners. All right, let's jump right in, Art. We'll start with the cover story this month uh, out of Michigan. Cover story, and and our cover headline was entirely unbelievable, <laughs> and that is what U.S. District Judge Bernard A. Friedman of the Eastern District of Michigan said about the expert testimony that was offered by the state of Michigan to try to justify their same-sex marriage ban. Uh, this is an unusual case in that it is the first marriage equality case to be decided based on a trial record since the Windsor decision last June. Uh, Judge Friedman was facing a a rather unusual case which was filed before Windsor. Many of the same-sex marriage cases that we've been talking about over the past few months were filed after Windsor in sort of the rush to capitalize on that decision. But this case was pending as an adoption case. Uh, This involved a lesbian couple, April DeBoer and Jane Rouse, who each had had children and wanted to adopt each other's children, and Michigan doesn't allow second-parent adoptions uh, they, for, for two adults to be legal parents of the same child. They have to be married to each other in Michigan. So uh, Judge Friedman identified the issue in this case really as the ban on marriage and invited the parties to, su- to submit an amended complaint attacking the marriage ban which they did. Uh, He advised that they do this last spring, and uh, the state filed a motion to dismiss that claim, and he rejected it. After all, he had invited it. And then uh, parties filed motions for summary judgment, and he denied the motions for summary judgment in the fall on the grounds that he thought he needed a trial record here, uh, given the arguments the state was making. He said the state should have a chance to put on its experts, the plaintiff should have a chance to put on their experts, Clearly, the state thinks that uh, the ability of gay parents to raise children is an issue here as to whether they should be allowed to marry. Uh, Ultimately, he concluded it wasn't. Uh, But he also, and I think this is is the real significance of this case, this was the first case since Windsor where we have been able to put state witnesses on the witness stand and cross-examine them under oath and draw out the real emptiness of the studies that they're relying on, so-called studies. Right. You have to put the word study in quotation marks yeah. because uh, Judge Friedman as much as said that the Regnerist study isn't even really a study, yeah. at least not for what it purports to show. Uh, and the Regnerist study, this is, uh, uh, we should clarify for people who haven't been following along over a long period of time, but uh, this was a study by University of Texas professor Mark Regnerist who uh, was commissioned by the Witherspoon Foundation, which is a right-wing anti-gay foundation. He was specifically commissioned to do this study so they would have a published study that could be used in uh, briefs, in amicus briefs, in a trial to counter same-sex marriage cases. And so he was specifically commissioned to do this study, and he was specifically commissioned to produce a particular result. And Judge Friedman said... He delivered the money, you know, they, they gave him a big chunk of money to do this so-called study, and uh, he surveyed uh, 
several hundred children, or rather adults, young adults, uh, and asked everyone about their parents. And he identified, uh, I think, two children in the entire study had been raised from birth to adulthood by a same-sex couple that was together the whole time. And they turned out fine. Oh, yeah. According to Regnerus on cross-examination, he said those two turned out fine. <laughs> uh, the ones who didn't turn out so well were the ones who were born in heterosexual marriages that uh, foundered. They, there was divorce. There were custody disputes. Yeah. Uh, there were parents with all kinds of problems. Uh, some of them, uh, it was a parent who wasn't out but who engaged in an affair with an, a person of the same sex. Uh, sometimes while the child was living with the other parent. I mean, it, it turned out that if you were trying to prove by this study that same-sex couples who are married produce an inferior result. You couldn't because I don't think there were any same-sex couples who were married who were the parents of any of the children in the study. Yeah. And it, it seems to me to do a study like this, you would probably have to go to a state like Massachusetts where same-sex couples have been marrying for a decade now yeah. and look at the children they've been raising and compare it to children raised by different sex married couples. Yeah. Uh, but the plaintiffs put on expert witnesses whose uh, academic and institutional credentials were just as impressive as the defendants, and they all said that there is no discernible difference in children raised by same-sex couples or children raised by different-sex couples if you control for all the other factors that have been identified as affecting a child's development yeah. in terms of the uh, family constellation in which they're living. So this was... I think uh, it's really important for those uh, who are pursuing marriage equality. We now have a federal district judge who heard the experts, who heard the cross-examination, who gave it a thorough study, and who concluded that the state's experts were unbelievable, yeah. not credible, yeah. no weight or little weight given to their opinions. Uh, and this now is on appeal to the Sixth Circuit. Uh, there was a little drama. That, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, Judge Friedman... He was being very strategic here. He released his decision around 5 p.m. on Friday, March 21st. So all the county clerk offices in Michigan were closed. Uh, so there was no mad rush to the clerk's office that night to get married. Uh, at the end of the trial, the attorney for the state asked the judge specifically, said, if you're going to rule for the plaintiffs, will you please stay your ruling because we will appeal to the Sixth Circuit? Yeah. And he didn't even mention that in the opinion. The order just said, you know, I order you to stop enforcing the Michigan Marriage Amendment. Yeah. Uh, so the next morning, uh, four county clerks opened their offices on a Saturday morning, which they normally wouldn't do, in order to issue marriage licenses. And people started getting married. And uh, it took a while for the state to get their act together and get to the Sixth Circuit, which issued a stay that afternoon temporarily while they pondered whether they should issue a more permanent stay pending appeal, which they did later in the week. Yeah. But in the meantime, 315 same-sex couples got married yeah. on Saturday morning yeah. in Michigan. And so now there's a dispute about the status of their marriages. Yeah. Very interesting development now. What a difference a year makes. The federal government is now recognizing marriages that the states who gave those licenses out aren't. Right, <laughs> in Utah and Michigan yes. now. Uh, so Attorney General Holder was asked, you know, what's the status of these marriages under federal law? He says, well, we recognize them. Yeah. And I think uh, the governor played into this, maybe not intentionally. Yeah. Uh, Rick Snyder was asked about the status of these marriages. And he said, well, the marriages were valid at the time they were performed. 
He said, we cannot recognize them now because we have a stay. And the stay means that the Michigan Marriage Amendment is in effect, yeah. which bans the state from recognizing them. But he's, uh, he, I admit that they're valid, he said. Uh, the attorney general was a little uh, unhappy about that. Yeah. Uh, and, and, of course, uh, groups that are opposed to same-sex marriage were outraged uh, because they thought they could count on Rick Snyder, who's a pretty conservative Republican governor. Yeah. Uh, but in any event, there will probably be a lawsuit against Michigan in state court uh, as the ACLU brought in Utah, yep. saying, you know, you issued the licenses, they're married, you've got to recognize them, they have to know what tax status they're going to file in, yeah. they have to know, you know, test date, succession and child custody, all these issues as to which marriage is significant. Yeah. Now, I don't know whether April DeBoer and Jane Rowles got married on Saturday morning. No, that's a good question. I don't so either. I haven't seen in any news reports, so I don't know whether they've actually gotten around now to doing their jobs. It was sort of a strange collection of counties. It wasn't uh, It wasn't Detroit itself. Right. You know it that? wasn't contiguous counties. Yeah. It was all, you know, four counties spotted around the state. Yeah. Uh, and I guess that just represents the clerks who were really alert to what was happening yeah. and eager. Yes. A clerk that was not eager to issue a marriage license wasn't going to open the office on Saturday right. morning. Yeah. So we have some friends in county clerk offices. Yeah. And this is pointed out in, uh, in some of the other cases. But also in this case, uh, there was one county clerk who was actually a named defendant. And she testified at trial on behalf of the plaintiffs. Yeah. Uh, they they wanted to establish that actually the state asks very few questions and has very few qualifications to get married, and uh, qualifications that might be relevant to someone's ability to be a good parent right. are not asked about, like criminal records and things like that. Yeah. So uh, it was an interesting case, and there was an interesting side note that sort of came up in the uh, professional notes section of the April issue, we note that Judith Levy, an openly lesbian attorney, was confirmed by the Senate and took office as a judge of the Eastern District of Michigan. And it turns out that Judge Levy clerked for Judge Friedman. And while she was clerking for Judge Friedman, she had twins with her same-sex partner. And according to the news story I saw, Judge Friedman is almost sort of like a godfather to the twins. So over the course of time, and, and this clerkship was back in the early 90s, so over the course of time, he has seen someone who he knew and who was re reasonably close to him raising children who have turned out very well. Uh, in addition to the twins, her partner had a, a child who was now uh, starting her freshman year at Yale. You know, these are good yeah. outcomes. Yeah. So, uh, well, we may very well see a, a recusal demand soon or something. He should have recused. Well, he, he, already, he knew a gay couple. He decided the case already. <laughs> no one challenged him. Yeah. And if you if you had to recuse every judge who knew a gay couple, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it turns out that gay law students do pretty well in getting clerkships. Yeah. And there are an awful lot of federal judges around the country who have had gay clerks, yeah. including at the Supreme Court yeah. at this point. So so this one is going to the Sixth Circuit. Uh I don't know that the Sixth Circuit is expediting things too much because it's now it's considering to pile appeals. Up at the Sixth Circuit. It's, it's considering appeals from four states now. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the Sixth Circuit, I think, will probably get around to arguments sometime this summer. Yeah. But we've uh, we probably should mention the others that are going on. Yeah. We we got a ruling in Tennessee. Yeah. Uh, this was sort of uh, unexpected. What happened was. Uh, that uh, there is a uh, marriage recognition case on file in Tennessee, Tanko versus Haslam. And some of the, the plaintiffs, the named plaintiffs, uh, three same-sex couples, 
uh, some of them had real immediate pressing need for recognition, especially one couple because they're expecting a kid. Mm -hmm. And they really want both members of the couple to be legal parents. Uh, so they asked for a preliminary relief, and Judge Alita Trauger of the U.S. District Court in the Middle District of Tennessee gave them a preliminary injunction mm. and absolutely rejected the state's request for a stay. Uh, the state made the usual argument, you know, everyone else has been stayed. All the other states, it's been stayed pending appeal. Stay ours. And she said, well, just a minute. I didn't order the state to recognize all same-sex marriages. Mm. I ordered them to recognize the same-sex marriages of the three plaintiff couples. Yeah. She said, I don't see how you can have statewide chaos by, by recognizing three. Uh, she rejected the state's argument that uh, they wouldn't suffer irreparable injury. She said... Well, it's sort of an irreparable injury if your kid is born and isn't related to one of the parents. I mean, you can maybe go back later and do an adoption or something, but it's not the same thing. Right. And uh, the other couples also would be denied various benefits in the interim. Uh, so she said, I don't see any problem here with uh, allowing the preliminary injunction to stay in effect. Yeah. And they're going to take that to the Sixth Circuit. Yeah. So the Sixth Circuit's going to be very busy with same-sex marriage cases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so are the other circuits. Yeah, yeah. And we've got developments to talk about. Yeah. In uh, Utah, we're going to have oral arguments during the second week in April. The Oklahoma case, we're going to have oral arguments uh, later in the month. Yeah. We're going to have oral arguments in Virginia in May, May 13th. Yeah. And there, there's been a, an interesting development. Uh, there were two cases filed in Virginia. There was the AFER case, or the case that AFER, the American Foundation of Equal Rights, took over. Yeah. And there is the Lambda ACLU case in two different districts. And the AFER case just pushed forward faster and got a decision uh, from, the, uh, from the trial judge. So that one's on appeal. The plaintiffs in the other case, the Lambda ACLU case, petitioned the Fourth Circuit to be allowed to participate in the appeal, and their petition was granted. So in a development too late for the April issue of Law Notes, it just happened uh, shortly before we're doing this taping, uh, the district judge in the Lambda ACLU case said, well, I'm going to put our case on hold. There's no reason for me to even think about it until the Fourth Circuit rules in the other case. Yeah. Uh, so basically the Fourth Circuit's ruling on uh, the other case will be the one that counts. And that case keeps changing its name because we keep changing defendants. Yeah. It's the Bostick case. Right. But now the defendant, the lead defendant, is George Schaefer, who's one of the uh, county clerks yeah. who's being sued because uh, the state registrar decided she agrees with the attorney general <laughs> and the governor. She's not going to defend the statutes. Yeah. So, so that's going on. Yeah. And then the Ninth Circuit, we've had a very interesting development. In the Ninth Circuit, uh, as uh, our faithful listeners may recall, uh, the Nevada case is pending. Yeah. That's the case that uh, the marriage equality side lost uh, well before the Windsor decision. And it's on appeal. The governor and the attorney general decided they weren't going to defend the marriage ban in the Ninth Circuit because in January the Ninth Circuit ruled in a jury selection case that sexual orientation is a suspect classification yeah. as a result of Windsor. Uh, therefore, you can't use a peremptory challenge to strike a gay juror. Uh, and they saw the handwriting on the wall. If sexual orientation discrimination is subject to heightened scrutiny, that applies to our marriage case. And we can't show that there's an important state interest that's substantially advanced by uh, banning same-sex marriage. But now, it seems, even though the defendant in that Ninth Circuit uh, juror case, uh, Smith-Klein Beecham versus Abbott Laboratories, Abbott Laboratories announced 
even though they requested additional time to decide whether to petition for on-bank review, which was granted to them, that is the additional time, they decided they weren't going to ask for on-bank review, and they also said we're not planning to file a cert petition. Uh, so that case goes back to trial. However, one judge of the circuit, identity undisclosed, uh, asked that the judges be polled on on-bank anyway, even though no one was asking for it. Uh, so the circuit asked the parties to brief the question whether the case should be reconsidered on-bank. Meanwhile, having originally scheduled oral argument in the Nevada case for April 9th, that was put on hold as well. So we don't have a new scheduled date for the Nevada argument. And I suspect that until the uh, circuit decides whether to do on-bank review, we won't. And in fact, if they grant on-bank review, they may put off the Nevada argument until they've decided the heightened scrutiny issue. Which, as you noted, will take a long time. Yes, we'll yeah. need briefing. We'll need oral argument. It could go for months, uh, even if they expedite it, which I would hope they would do, uh, because uh, they've got this appeal pending and because there are three states within the Ninth Circuit where marriage equality cases are on file at the trial level. And I can't imagine we're not going to also have a, a case in Alaska to, to add we have Oregon, we have Idaho, we have Arizona, where uh, cases are pending. Mm -hmm. And then finally, in the Tenth Circuit, we got uh, an announcement of the three-judge panel. The uh, judges are two Republican appointees, one Democratic appointee. But I, I imagine a high likelihood that that will go on bank in the Tenth Circuit, no matter how it turns out, mm -hmm. even if it's unanimous. Uh, if it's a unanimous decision for marriage equality, the state will petition for on bank. Or maybe they'll just run straight to the Supreme Court. Yeah. But if they go to on bank, the circuit right now has a six to five Democratic majority with some vacancies. So it'll be interesting to see what happens yeah. there. All right, a lot to cover as usual this month on the federal federal court marriage equality front. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing a New York decision ordering the city of New York to pay for gender reassignment surgery for a transgender girl in the foster care system. All right, we're back discussing uh, the case of D.F. v. Carrion, a case recently decided by the New York State Supreme Court overruling uh, an administration for children's services decision to deny gen gender reassignment procedures to a 20-year-old transgender girl in foster care. Art, can you bring us up to speed? Yeah, this is uh, a, a very interesting case. Uh, Judge uh, Justice Peter H. Moulton, uh, we have to remember that in New York, the Supreme Court is the trial court yeah. of general jurisdiction, but the judges are called justices because it's the Supreme Court. Yeah. Uh, so Justice Moulton uh, found that there was an abuse of discretion. There was, there was an arbitrary and capricious decision here to deny uh, gender reassignment surgery to D.F. D.F., who was uh, born back in the uh, mid-'90s and uh, had a very difficult uh, time with, with her parents, uh, was born identified male at birth. Parents did not approve of her gender nonconforming behavior. Father was abusive. Uh, she was finally removed from uh, the household at age 15 and placed in foster care, but placing a gender nonconforming transgender 15-year-old with a private foster placement is unlikely, so she was sent to a group home, Green Chimneys, which specialized in LGBT youth. Uh, but she she proved to be uh, 
rather difficult uh, resident. She would disappear for at, at various times. She stayed over with friends. She didn't report where she was. She didn't always report to her health care appointments. But she did get a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. She did begin on hormones. And then uh, as she approached age 20, she asked for gender reassignment surgery, and the doctors uh, who were providing her health care endorsed that request. Uh, so the, the problem for ACS, the Administration for Children's Services, is they provide health care to their charges through the Medicaid system, yeah. and Medicaid does not cover gender reassignment. So if they're going to do it, it's going to come out of their own budget. Yeah. And they have a procedure uh, and under the procedure, you file your application, and it goes to a review committee, which makes a recommendation, and the recommendation then goes to the deputy commissioner who's been delegated to make a decision uh, by the commissioner. And the deputy commissioner in this case received the affirmative recommendation of the review commission and turned it down. And uh, she said, among other things, that the application wasn't complete because it didn't specify all the procedures that DF was asking for. There were several different uh, medical and surgical procedures. And she said, you know, file an amended one. So DF came back and filed another application. And this time, instead of referring it to the review committee, uh, the commissioner referred it to uh, an, an independent expert who wasn't a mental health professional, which under these prevailing standards, you have to have a mental health professional uh, deal with this. She, uh, she referred it to Dr. John Stever, uh, an assistant professor of pediatrics and adolescent medicine at Mount Sinai Medical Center, who we are told in the opinion uh, focuses on health issues facing LGBTQ youth in his practice. And he said... The DF's poor adherence to the rules and regulations of the foster placement, the frequent absences, the missing of appointments, suggested that DF would not uh, follow up appropriately after surgery with medical appointments, and this could lead to serious complications because this kind of surgery can have complications. And so he recommended against. He said, maybe later, maybe not now. But at this point, DF was 20. At 21, DF ages out of the system, mm. which means ACS no longer has to provide this care. And uh, uh, the, uh, the deputy commissioner turned down again based on Dr. Stever's recommendation, and the case went to court. And Judge Justice Moulton said, well, t hold on a minute. You didn't follow your procedures. Your pro procedures say the application has to go to the review committee, and then if you're going to refer it to a professional, it has to be a mental health professional with expertise on this, not a pediatrician, yeah. and uh, decided it was arbitrary and capricious. But I think the most interesting part about this is that Moulton expressly references twice in his opinion the fact that DF was about to age out of the system, and if DF didn't get the surgery while in the system, it was going to be a long time of ever before DF would get the surgery uh, for the reason it's very expensive. Uh, general health insurance policies usually don't cover it. Medicaid doesn't cover it. DF ha doesn't have her GED yet, hasn't finished with high school yet. Employment prospects, well, unskilled. You know, is DF going to be in a position to raise the kind of money necessary to pay for this? Right. Uh, so this is DF's chance 
to get it paid for by the city, yeah. but only if it happens before she's 21. Yeah. So Judge Justice Moulton orders them to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, I think it's a very pragmatic decision. He says, yeah. obviously, the financial issues are not directly relevant to whether she's entitled to it under the uh, standard procedures and regulations. But it seems pretty clear all the doctors say that this is necessary treatment for yeah. her, that this is appropriate. And it's ACS's responsibility to provide appropriate treatment to people who they care. Yeah. So I know advocates have really hailed this as a big victory for Important the transgender decision. community. Important decision because yeah. it's a, an opinion. It's been published in the law journal, which means it's going to end up being published in the official reports. Yep. Uh, and although in past cases ACS has occasionally provided uh, coverage for this kind of stuff, it was for actually, ironically, for younger people. Yeah. Uh, so the judge is too polite to say this in the opinion, as I say in my article in Law Notes, but he keeps coming back to this financial issue. So there's the clear implication here that ACS was stalling to avoid doing this because DF is almost 21. Yeah. They figure, you know, we're going to avoid taking a forty dollars to $50,000 hit to our budget yeah. by delaying this. But, you know, when you've got minors in your care, you have an obligation. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Art. We'll take another short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing a Massachusetts appeals court case affirming a jury's rejection of a gay man's tort claims against a former partner. All right, we're back discussing the case of MLVSN out of the Appeals Court of Massachusetts. A gay man sought to hold his ex-partner liable in tort for intentional infliction of emotional distress and battery. Can you uh, explain the case to us, Art? Yeah, this this one is uh, factually kind of interesting. Uh, ML and SN had a serious romantic relationship, according to the court, from 1998 until 2008. Uh, ML evidently was pretty hot because ML <laughs> had been a model who had posed for uh, gay porn and uh, his pictures were featured in an issue of Advocate Men, a now defunct magazine. Uh, and uh, he was depicted in one photograph as wearing black leather chaps with a yellow stripe down the side, which evidence at trial indicated was a signal of the wearer's interest in sexual conduct involving urination. At any rate, uh, what ML claims, uh, rather, uh, I guess ML was the hot-looking man, SN, uh, who is, uh, yeah, no, ML was the hot-looking man, yeah. and ML says that SN, his former partner, had played on this in order to recruit people for threesomes. Yeah. And then they, uh, the threesomes usually involve rough sex of a kind that uh, he thought should be actionable, including uh, something akin to rape. Uh, I, we, we can't really get into all the specifics on this podcast, but that gets us an X rating, and <laughs> yes. you know, then we have problems. But the, the point is he claimed that, uh, that he was subjected to various sexual assaults as a result of this. Uh, and uh, they broke up in 2008, and uh, I guess after stewing about it for a while, he f filed suit claiming that he had been uh, emotionally harmed, uh, that batteries had been committed against him, all kinds of stuff. And one of the uh, big issues at trial 
was whether the defendant could put into evidence the photos from Advocate Men, you know, showing the jury that uh, his, his boyfriend, who's now suing him, was, you know, a, a gay porn model and all yeah. this kind of stuff, and was into urination because one of the one of the contested sexual activities involved urination. Uh, so uh, evidently there was a, a motion in limine filed on behalf of ML to keep the nude photograph spread out, and that was uh, overruled by the court, which said it was relevant. Uh, and uh, now on appeal, the argument was being made that that biased the jury uh, and it should have been excluded. And the appeals court agrees it should have been excluded, but they said that the issue had not been properly preserved for appeal because although the motion in limine was denied uh, at the trial, the attorney for the plaintiff didn't renew the objection to the photos. Yeah. I guess assuming that the judge had turned down the motion, figured that it was pointless to object, but actually you have to object at trial in order to preserve your objection for appeal. So the clear implication of the court's decision is if the objection had been properly presented at trial, uh, they might have overturned the jury verdict in this case. So I speculate in my article that maybe there's a malpractice suit brewing yeah. here. See uh, how upset ML is about not winning damages here. Yeah. Uh, part of the problem also was that some of the sexual acts that uh, he was seeking to uh, hold his ex-partner liable for had occurred so so long ago that they were barred by the statute of limitations. Yeah. He he tried to uh, argue that this was a continuing conduct uh, and that so that you could reach back to the earlier stuff as part of a continuing pattern or chain yeah. of conduct, and the court didn't go for it. It yeah. said that these seemed to be isolated incidents. Uh, so, unfortunately for yeah. ML, he struck out on appeal. Here. Yeah, a lot of uh, procedural lessons from this case. Yes. <laughs> All right, thanks, Art. Go to court fast and object to anything that's objectionable as often as you can. <laughs> yes. Right. We'll take our last short break, and when we return for our Of Note segment, we'll be discussing a case out of San Diego over a gay man's public nudity arrest in 2011 at Pride. All right. We're back to wrap up with our note segment for this edition. Uh, it is Walters v. San Diego and concerns a gay man arrested for public nudity for wearing a loincloth to San Diego Pride uh, in 2011. And I uh, wrote about this case for this issue. Uh, the name of the judge who, who ruled was Judge Kathy Ann ben Bensavango. Uh, and she's in the United States District Court for the Southern District of California. She dismissed all claims made by uh, Mr. Walters, Will Walters. Uh, he brought claims against the city of San Diego, San Diego Pride, several police officers, and the head of Pride Security over a public nudity arrest at San Diego Pride in 2011. Now, the arrest in question sprung out of San Diego's public nudity ordinance, uh, which defines nudity as... <clears throat> Uh, let's see, devoid of an opaque covering which covers the genitals, pubic hair, buttocks, perineum, anus, or anal region of any person. Now, on the day of the arrest, Mr. Walters uh, came to San Diego Pride wearing a gladiator-type black leather loincloth. And Art and I discussed this. Uh, you can easily Google him if you're interested in, in the outfit, uh, if you just Google his yes, name. Yes, he has been pictured in his, in his outfit. And yes. It doesn't look any more... Uh, risque than uh, what you might see for hundreds of people at, the, at New York Pride <laughs> yes. every year if the weather's warm enough. Uh, 
the problem was yeah. it was a windy day. Yes. Right? Yeah. And the the wind blew up the backside, his co- the backside of the cost- costume, and so his buttocks were exposed. Yes. And so the cops got after him. Yes. And he got a little mouthy with the cops. I was telling Art, I think that's that's sort of part of the reason here. He was mouthy with them when they, they asked him about it. So he got arrested and escorted out of the beer garden uh, and uh, was pretty upset about what happened and brought a variety of claims uh, against the city and the Pride people. Uh, for 14th Amendment equal protection, Fourth Amendment search and seizure, false arrest, battery, negligence, uh, civil rights violation. Um, anyway, Judge Ben Savango uh, did not react very positively to any of his claims, uh, mostly because she she sort of repeats throughout the opinion that she didn't think any of this had anything to do with his sexual orientation. Right, Art? Yeah. Uh, well, he, he presented some evidence that the San Diego Pride people had been concerned about nudity at Pride and had talked to the police department about really being strict about enforcing the nudity statute because they didn't like the complaints they were getting from members of the public, et cetera, et cetera. So part of his claim was that there was sort of a conspiracy between Pride and the police, uh, which she didn't really go for. She says, well, they asked the police to enforce a statute, you know. And uh, I think the the thing you picked out of the opinion that was the most fun, uh, that there is evidence that Walters may be the only person in the history of the city of San Diego arrested and booked on a standalone charge of public nudity that was not completely naked. So he did, I think, have a point, you know, when he brought that up. Uh, But, again, she she sort of kept going back to the fact that there's no evidence here that this was – a conspiracy or a really blatant policy of targeting gay men at Pride. Um, it was, yeah, you know... Presumably a lesbian who was wearing a similar costume would have been arrested. <laughs> right. Or a straight person, for that matter. <laughs> yes. You know. um, she did make some, I think, not, ne- not, not as believable statements about how Pride is a family event and a lot of straight people go, I don't know that I, I believe that part of the well, opinion. Have you been to San Diego Pride? <laughs> no, I haven't. So maybe I understand it's a, little... it's a regular carnival. Okay. But <laughs> at any rate, uh, this is supposed to be of notes. It's supposed to be short. Yes. But uh, we, sh- we should also mention that there's a recent news report that uh, he's going to appeal to the Ninth Circuit. Yes. So uh, the case is not over yet. We shall see uh, if he has more luck at the, uh, at the Ninth Circuit. Where... Sexual orientation gets heightened scrutiny, maybe. 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 (laughs) All right. Thanks a lot, Art. Uh, That's all the time we have for today. And thanks to our listeners. uh, If you would like to read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBT Bar NY or find us on Facebook. Thanks again. We'll see you in May.